Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Pick up from where we left off last week just to do this little mini lesson on leadership. Absolutely, it's not the long version. Uh, So I want to finish that up. And then we're going to go into, like I said, from last week's Torah portion from Chaye Sarah, which I think is a great Torah portion for teaching the counterbalance that husbands and wives have, that males and females have, that just, it shows the importance of why we were created male and female. The job could be done with one gender. I'm sure that Elohim would have created with one gender, but in him is goodness and perfection. And so in putting these two together and understanding how they work together and complement one another, I think that's where Abraham and Sarah have a lot to teach us. And especially as we look at this pattern that that kind of provoked it, where we see Abraham and Isaac both telling their wives, say you're my sister, so that I may live on account of you. We have Jacob consulting two sisters. Let's take a look at that, because we last week we talked a little bit about it being a parable, how the matriarchs in scripture often symbolize the Holy Spirit. They are like parables of the Ruach HaKodesh. And depending on what's going on between that husband and wife at that time, often you can tell how the Holy Spirit is being allowed to work in his life or is being impaired from working in his life. So we'll go through that pattern. And if you're interested in the long version, there's two sources. One of the sources I put into the newsletter this week where you couldn't miss it, it's Esther Mysteries Behind the Mask, where again, we go back into the cave of the couple's Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah, and even go back into Adam and Eve and show you what that pattern is uh, going back a long time. And also, actually, what's in that Becky book, Esther's Mysteries Behind the Mask, is an even probably more condensed version of what is in workbook three. Workbook three is the spirit-filled family. And it's definitely not a bestseller. (laughs) If if we compare it to workbook one or workbook two or workbook four, it's, it's just not a performer up there. And maybe that says something because maybe if we looked more carefully at how our families interact with one another, we wouldn't end up with so many of the problems that we address in workbooks two and four. But often we want to skip over that part. It's it's not the interesting part. But again, um, one of the quotes that I have in there, it was a, from a particular rabbi. And he said, concerning this, this modern era, he said, if we don't fix what's wrong with the family, then it's going to be nothing more than rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic without this strong family structure without husbands knowing their roles and operating in it, without wives knowing their roles and operating in it, without children knowing their roles and operating in it, without our singles knowing their roles and operating in it, then the ship is going down. I think it's, (laughs) I don't know how much of the ship is still showing above water at this point, if we look around at how the family has been destroyed. 
And I think that rabbi was right. We have been rearranging a lot of deck chairs and refusing to acknowledge the ship is down. Uh, we need rescue. Send in the Coast Guard, send in the rescue ships. For some people, they need scuba divers at this point. That's just the reality. And so it would be nice if before the ship starts sinking with our families, our individual families, we could look at the, the foundational teachings of scripture as it pertains to not just male, female, but to husbands, wives, children, and singles. Get that biblical foundation so that when we depart from that way, then we can allow the word to correct us to get back onto that path before, like we say, the, the ship is already under, the car's in the ditch, before it's irretrievable. And that's that's one thing I would caution you about walking this walk of the Torah. The deeper you walk in the word, the more, I think, vividly we can see the cracks. It doesn't mean that the Torah causes the cracks in our family. It means that the Torah will more quickly expose the cracks, not just in the family structure, but in how each family member is walking in the Holy Spirit. That can be revealed by the Torah. It's just like this pressure that begins to be exerted. It's The Torah is not a light thing to carry. It's a great responsibility. It's a plow. It's been compared like putting your hand to the plow. If you're not fit to handle that plow, then very quickly the Holy Spirit will begin to identify those, those places. And if you're not willing to repair them, then you will take your hand off the plow. You will turn back when things get rough. And so it's not pleasant when we see the, the pressures that living in such a, a troubled time exerts upon us, especially if we believe we're in the footsteps of Messiah, it's not a light thing. It's a, it's a heavy thing. We each and every generation, we have you know our burden to bear as a unique generation. And so while we have a lot of luxuries and ease on the one hand, on the other hand, I think we have maybe more immense psychological pressure. There's other forces being exerted upon us uh, in ways that previous generations couldn't have them exerted upon them. And so often what will happen is the Holy Spirit will reveal to you who's been walking with you. And maybe you didn't suspect at all that that was the true character of that person. But that's what we found out in the wilderness, right? They all left Egypt, but once they got into the wilderness and the Holy Spirit really started testing them in the wilderness, when the Ruach starts having to move through tests and trials, that's when it's not like the crack appears. It's just that the crack can be seen by other people. It can be perceived by other people. So, like I said, if you want the longer version of this um, the the not just husband and wife, but male and female roles and how they're alluded to in scripture. Again, husbands and wives, how you put those things back together as you function in a family, uh, spirit-filled children, we're not leaving them out. They also have obligations. They have commandments specific to them in scripture. We can't omit that. We can't take their responsibility for them. They do have children commandments and even singles. It follows the same paradigm. And so, uh, again, if you'd like to explore some more in that area, please do. Uh, you can find Workbook 3 on our, our website. You can find it on Amazon after Shabbat. Uh, but just consider it. Maybe put it on the 
put the the Becky book on the list, the Esther book. And if you if you like those sections, those chapters in the Becky book in the in the shorter version, then you might be willing to to tackle the workbook itself. And I don't think the workbook itself is that difficult, but sometimes uh, if you have limited time, it seems daunting to tackle a whole workbook. So maybe you could do it as a husband and wife. Maybe you could do it as a Bible study. Um, Maybe you could break into men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies and even children's Bible studies. There's there's no limit there uh, to how you might be able to use it. So something to think about. So let's get started. I'm going to share my screen where we picked up last week. And of course, we're, you know, we're talking about leadership in a congregation and how important it is to have a sense of what's coming before it comes. Because if you don't have you know, a little bit of, of an idea of the, the problems that can come through the back door and through the front door, then often you're, you're not prepared. Or you come into this thinking, oh, family, finally, I found the perfection in the word. Great. Now we're going to live in a perfect world. It is going to be unicorns and rainbows and, you know, peace, love and casseroles. And we know that probably exactly the opposite will be true uh, once this certain little honeymoon period is over. What you'll find is that because there tends to be a vacuum of leadership and authority in our fellowships and congregations, then those who want to prey upon that instinctually, and we looked at some verses about how like they're, they're basically like wild animals. If they sense a vacuum of leadership, then they believe they're the one to step up and take control. If you're not willing to admit that that can happen, then you're probably not going to be prepared when it does. That's just human nature. And it's been going on since the time of the apostles and even before that, but at least the apostles pointed it out to us. So we didn't have to be caught off guard. And here's the biggie. Here's what's going to disrupt your fellowship, your congregation, your Bible study. It's exactly what we're using right now. It's the internet. The digital age has made so much learning and knowledge available at our fingertips, literally at our fingertips. But on the other hand, it's made a much bigger pile of garbage available at our fingertips. But there is uh, an element as we're looking at the, remember the seven abominations, the things that says that Adonai hates a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run quickly to evil, a false witness breathing out lies, and then one who separates brothers. How does all that start? Well, it starts in the heart of it. It starts with a heart um, designing evil plans. But maybe the first inkling of it is going to be the proud look. That's the first abomination. So often just looking at somebody, uh, it's a high look. It's looking over others. It's saying, I've topped you on this. I beat you on this. I've outperformed you on this. I've out-researched you on this. Um, I've out-righted you on this. That, That seems to be our big thing. We want to be right. And often our sense of being right precedes our rightness. It's simply that we have a perception of rightness, but we haven't lived long enough to do all the research on that. And then we'll find out maybe a few years later, oh my goodness, uh, I didn't know everything I should have known before I declared myself the expert on this particular topic. 
And, you know, what's even more troublesome is so many times people will, they will pretend to hear challenges to those positions, but they're not really because they've already embraced it. They loved it. They've hugged it. They've petted it. They put clothes on it. You know, they've enrolled it in school. It's now their little pet doctrine. And you're not going to pry that little pet doctrine out of them any more than you're going to pry away their pet chihuahua. It's they're going to defend it to the death. And so this is why I say that the voice of the Holy Spirit is so often ignored um, when things are out of balance. And so here's your your big challenge. If you have a, a fellowship, it's going to be the appearance of experts who don't want accountability. They will say they want accountability. They will say they want you to hear them out until you disagree with their conclusion, until you point out some problems with their conclusions and say, how can you reconcile these verses with what this conclusion is? Because you have to reconcile them and you can't just leave them out there. There has to be an explanation for these. You can't just simply go to the buffet line and say that green beans are the you know, the only food on earth. I mean, there's more than green beans out there, but some people, they, they've they just got a green bean mentality when it comes to their doctrines, even when there's some serious challenges to that doctrine. And so sometimes it's just time, you know, sometimes you have to let folks get down to the end of that road and find out there's nothing at the end of it. And then they can circle back maybe and have a conversation at that point. And that can happen. We always pray for that because we've got a 50-50 chance of us being the one that's held on to the PAC doctrine to the point that we're rejecting other ideas, other verses, other ways of reconciling these verses. But as long as we're an expert about without accountability, it makes it much easier to perpetuate these things and keep them alive. And that's why they just recycle around the internet. The same things people are following for today are the same things that were going around 23 years ago. Trust me. They're not new. It's just that they're new to the person. So they feel like it must be new to everybody. And so we have to be really careful that pride does not enter into the work of the Spirit. You know, that's what in Acts 8.23, Peter said to Simon the sorcerer, Simon the sorcerer was a spiritual person, and he's hanging around with the apostles. And then at some point, he tips his hand. He, we, we figure out why he's hanging around with them. I say, you're not, you're, these folks are going to be hanging with you. <laughs> they want to be around you because they sense the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, but they don't have a proper relationship to the Holy Spirit. They have a personal motivation. They have something to gain personally by appropriating the power of the Holy Spirit or the power of knowledge of his word. So we tend to be people who know a little more than the average about the scriptures. Um, information is power in our world. It's one form of power. And often people will covet the information because they covet the power. In this case, the apostles are not just speaking with power. They're demonstrating power. They're doing miracles. They're healing people, this sort of thing. And so finally, Simon, the sorcerer, tips his hand. He wants to buy it. He says, tell me how much to, to purchase this power that you have. And the other Simon, Simon Peter, he says, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. 
So it's possible for spiritual people to nevertheless be in bondage to evil. You know, you have to ask, what spirit are they of? Yes, they. you can be a spiritual person. It doesn't mean it's the Holy Spirit. Because when people seek the power of Adonai, apart from submission to Adonai, which means submitting to his word, then there is a possibility that they're caught up in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. They perceive the power of Adonai and the knowledge of his word as something with which to control people. Sometimes they see it as a, a way to make a living. So we have to be careful of pride. And one of the, the big avenues through which we can grow the big head of pride is going to be the internet, hands down, one of the biggest things. So here's um, an excerpt from an article that I think is very important. It was published back in 2015. And so I've just I've pulled some little excerpts out of the full article, but I've got, I've got the citation written down there. It was in the Washington Post, if you'd like to pull the whole article. But here's what it says about searching the internet. It says, searching the internet may cause systematic failure to recognize the extent to which we rely on outsourced knowledge. In other words, you're quoting someone else, which is fine if you're relying on primary sources. But even those primary sources, you have to be able to vet them to know what the agenda is. You know, there used to be a joke that went around as I know it's true, I saw it on TV. I think a, there was a recent series of commercials that was based on, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really a doctor. I'm not really this or that, but I did sleep at a Holiday Inn last night. It's kind of the same idea, relying on outsourced knowledge. And because we have a familiar familiarity with the topic, whether we stayed in a Holiday Inn last night, whether we did a search on the internet, whether we read a book, sometimes going through the process, we weight that so heavily and say, now I'm the expert, rather than admitting we're reading an expert. Hopefully, you're reading an expert, but you're also reading a human being. Even if that human being is an expert, he's still a human being. So they said people mistake access to information for their own personal understanding of the information. Internet users, and these were through um, tests that they did. They did studies to find out how people are interacting with the internet. They said internet users demonstrated their inflated ego. All right, so this is a psychological study. They're going to use psychological words. Just put pride in there. <laughs> An inflated ego is pride. Internet users demonstrated their pride. Though some people's online searches were unsuccessful. In other words, the, the study had the computer set up where they couldn't find the answer to their question. It was purposely set up that way. It says merely typing into Google and scrolling through the results seemed to offer a confidence boost. I mean, we're talking about those little bird blurbs that pull up when you type a topic into to Google. We're not even talking about reading the, the whole article. Imagine how, <laughs> how proud you would be if you read all those articles, the whole article. It says, even when a filter was put on Google to ensure that the search turned up no results at all, 
just a message did not match any documents and a gentle suggestion to check their spelling, the internet users remained more confident about the general knowledge assessment than those who hadn't tried searching at all. And their conclusion is, weirdly, it's the act of searching, not just simple access to the internet, that gives people the illusion of their own brilliance, fill in pride. So we can all fall prey to that. Apparently, this is a human behavior when we interact with the internet if we don't discipline ourselves, if we don't know this, that we can be deceived by the simple act of searching. That's what it says. People have the illusion of their own brilliance. That's a deception. That's even the garden <laughs> being tricked, <laughs> except you're tricking yourself. You're, you're, you're running these Google searches and just going through the motions of the search when you get done, however long you've searched, strangely, you feel more informed inside. Strangely, you feel like you're the expert on the topic inside. And so that's something to guard against as individuals guarding our own hearts. But what happens when somebody comes into our congregation who doesn't know this, who doesn't know how vulnerable we are to our own pride? Because we all want to be the expert. None of us want to admit we've been duped by some big internet thing. But probably we all have at some time or another. I mean, have you seen an ad and clicked on it and thought, I can't pass up that Black Friday deal? And you you clicked on it. And then you notice when you got to the shopping cart, oh, that's not free shipping. They're going to charge me $300 to, to ship that little thing. They just duped me right? And so the internet is set up to dupe you. (laughs) And and so we have to be extremely careful not to be duped because we could have clicked on that and we would have been really proud of our great purchase until we got the receipt and saw that that great deal that we got for $99.95 came with a $300 shipping bill. Didn't happen, but almost did. I'm just telling you that from experience. Would not have been happy had I clicked on that. So we have to be careful. We can fall prey to false confidence as we're doing our searches on words and phrases and sources, trying to make sense of the scripture, trying to know what to believe about uh, interpretations of scripture, how they've traditionally been, been understood. And if I'm rethinking kosher eating, if I'm rethinking what holidays that I keep, if I'm rethinking the Shabbat, have there been other doctrines that at one point in my life I believed that maybe I need to re-examine in an honest way? And internet access is easy. And so we have to be careful that if we don't have at least a little bit of background in biblical research techniques, what we can start to do is we start teaching ourselves. Well, if... (laughs) If you know how to do something that's not hugely difficult, but maybe on the, you know, it's it's a little bit up there, certain skill sets, it's it's not that easy. It'd be very difficult to teach yourself how to do it. If you've ever tried to teach a beginner, you know, at first it's, it's a lot of fun. They're learning the basics, but there's some point in between where they know just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> maybe teaching your kids how to drive, just enough to be dangerous. Well, we have a point 
in learning biblical study techniques where we know just enough Hebrew to be dangerous. We know just enough about a concordance to be dangerous. And this is where it really helps to have mentors, teachers, to help coach us and guide us through this error where it seems as though, you know, we come out of that humility of, oh my goodness, how, how did I merit such a great gift to see these truths that I had never seen before? There's a real humility that sets in at first, and then we start to get upset. Why didn't they tell me about this? Why did they keep me from this? And then all of a sudden, we're mistrustful of everyone. We're mistrustful of everything. We're mistrustful of every institution. And we just condemn everything as the institutions and traditions of men. And we throw all the babies out with the bathwater. And that's a phase to go through. But that's often, I believe, when we're most susceptible to stringing together these premises and error. And this is when we're extremely susceptible to stumbling into a twisted Torah teaching website. Mm -hmm. And what this generates is an endless list of contention points within the believing community. And you as leaders, whether you're the leader of your family, the leader of a, a little fellowship, or the leader of a congregation, what you'll find is you'll have people coming in there with these agendas. And it doesn't matter if you squash this contention point this week, they'll come in with a new one next week because the internet offers up a fresh steaming pile every day. And so you're going to probably have to set some limits. And this is what I tell people pretty frequently, especially my students in in my Monday and Tuesday classes. What Boaz said to Ruth was, stay in my field. I can guarantee your safety if you will stay in my field because I work my own fields. If you go out in these other fields, you might be okay, but I can't guarantee it. And so there's certain people that I minister with that if I knew you were out in their field, I would know you I would know you were just as safe out there in that field as you are in mine. But if you're in my field, I'm going to keep a watch over what comes in in terms of sources ways of looking at things. I am going to teach you hermeneutics. I may not call it that big, long word, but I will teach you things like context, first mention, progressive mention, complete mention, chiastic structures, and so forth. I'll teach you the difference between meaning and significance. I'll work those things in there, hopefully so that they're not too dry, so that they're fun. It's like Disneyland hermeneutics when you do workbook one. But I do everything I can to guarantee the safety of anybody gleaning in my field. But the second they pull up something else on the internet, I can't guarantee their safety. And as one single human being, I cannot possibly keep up with the number of websites or books that people are going to. And so you can't become concierge service. And don't put that burden on yourself to become concierge service for every single thing that comes down the pike you'll drive yourself nuts. There comes a point where you say, okay, I'm vetting what we're teaching this week. I'm I'm going to guarantee the safety of this field as much as humanly possible with the help of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to guarantee what's in this field. But if you're out gleaning in other fields and just picking stuff up here and there, don't come back to me and ask me to reconcile what we're teaching here with all these things you're picking up out there. It's not humanly possible. We'll waste all our energy, all our time, and we will not bear fruit. We will not. And so 
that's something that's something I learned out the hard way. That if if they're bound and determined to go just pick up food everywhere they go, then they're they're gonna have to deal with the consequences. I just fall back on Boaz and Ruth. If we will stay in those trusted pastures, then there's less likelihood of falling into error. There's less likelihood of being contention points that split up our our fellowships and our congregations. But there's been so many topics. And like I said, they're not new. They just keep recycling. It's just that they're the person that pulls it up that day who's never seen it before. It's something new and wonderful. And why don't we do this? All sorts of stuff. And just a reminder, you know, as not just leaders, but if you want to be a good follower, remember what is said in 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. And this is why the, the Jewish sages always taught hermeneutics or biblical interpretation techniques with a lot of caution, with a lot of accountability, because the Torah is prophecy. Moses is a prophet. His books are prophecy. You're not allowed to run around dreaming up private interpretations of those prophecies. If you know, you're the first one in history that that has ever been revealed to, that might be a sign. <laughs> and there, there were certain rules of interpretation that in themselves were susceptible to being abused. And that's why they always applied accountability procedures to make it more difficult. It didn't make it impossible to introduce a heresy, but it made it more difficult to introduce a heresy. And sometimes through the internet, we start reading all these sources like the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Pseudepigrapha, which is like the Apocrypha, right? Pseudepigrapha, like Enoch, the book of Enoch. A lot of people love the book of Enoch. It has value as a historical reference. What were people watching on TV on Wednesday night in the first century is basically why you would read the Pseudepigrapha. You can tell by people's literature what they talked about but it's not scripture. It's not scripture. So we can't fall in love with the book of Enoch and then start reworking the canon of the actual scripture. You'll fall into error. You'll you'll quit producing fruit. And so with these sources like the Apocrypha, we have people making themselves out to be experts simply because it's a new thing to them. And that's the Torah was such a new thing to them. It's almost like we go into a mode that says, well, anything I find that's new must have been concealed by man's tradition. And therefore, now it's finally being revealed. I finally stumbled onto the truth. And we're discarding even the, the meaning of what the pseudepigrapha is. It means fake name. The people that wrote those books wrote them under fake names. Uh, are there references to it in scripture? There are. You know, it does refer uh, to a few things. And again, that's where it might have value if you understand what it's good for. If you're using it as a historical reference to put things in a historical context, but not to create doctrines. That's that's not really, oh, it's not at all. It's not given to us to pick up a book. Oh, this this new book. Uh, I read a great paper one time on the shepherd of Hermas, which is 
in the Apocrypha and how it almost made it into the New Testament. <laughs> almost didn't quite make it. So is it an interesting book to read? Yes. Should I consider it when I'm formulating doctrine? Well, who says I have the authority to formulate a doctrine? That's always the question I should ask myself. So that stuff is going to pop up. Things like head covers, calendars, the sighting of the new moon related to the the barley and, and people not even understanding the fundamentals of how the barley was harvested and where it was harvested and why it was harvested in that location. Like I said, they learned a little bit of it, but they're not widely enough read to really understand why certain procedures were put in place as they were in the temple period. The pronunciation of the name, right? Using the name at all. What do we put on a Seder plate? Oh, no, don't put that egg on there. Until you read the history of it, and they're like, oh, that's what it's about. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know it had all that history. Should we observe Hanukkah? That's why I wrote The Seven Shepherds, the prophecies of Hanukkah and the in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. It's in there. It's actually even hinted to in the Torah. Is the Magen David a, a satanic symbol? I'm like, oh, please, 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 please uh, do a little bit more research. You know, or at least don't make these big pronouncements before you have finished your research. And you can tell where somebody is on their research sometimes by the statements that come out of their mouth, like they're not done yet. <laughs> so be ready for that as a leader. And somebody, if, if you challenge them and say, I prefer that you don't introduce this into the congregation. If you want to read it on your own time, if you want to practice it on your own time, that's great. But this is what the elders, the leaders of this congregation have decided our practice will be uh, concerning this issue. They'll probably challenge you and say, who are you? By what authority do you do this? Because I don't listen to the traditions of men, da 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 da, da. Well, actually, we're told very specifically in the Torah that there will be judges in our days. In our days. We can't pretend like all the judges are dead. There will be judges in every day. Deuteronomy 17.9 says, so you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict. There will be learned people in every generation. It's going to be up to you to find them. Deuteronomy 17.12, but the person who acts insolently by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, that person shall die, so you shall eliminate the evil from Israel. Right? Now, the key there is insolently. I think often people disregard the authority of a, a local shepherd, not out of insolence, but often out of ignorance and pride. Like we said, they've studied just enough to be dangerous, and they're not done yet. They don't always know they're not done yet. And so often they will come across as very insolent, arrogant, and so forth. There might be a little bit of arrogance there. But again, we, we want to pray and say, hey, if this is not your destination for right now, then we send you on your way with all good blessings, everything you need to thrive. And if you ever decide to come back, I mean, this is still an important thing. Um, unless there's something happens here, or we change our minds here, we would still expect your behavior within the congregation to conform to this standard, because this is the standard of our congregation. But give them time to go study and learn, to finish 
learning or to at least finish finding out that we're not in an ideal situation. And a lot of times they're trying to project an ideal when we're not in the land. We don't have a temple. We don't have a functioning priesthood, but we do have judges in our days and we need to respect the authority of those in the congregation uh, who were there to, to guide us through these questions. What if they make a mistake? Well, they will. They're human. That's not going to be a you know something on headline news. They will make a mistake. But if you'll remember, there's an offering in the Torah for leaders who lead people astray by accident. So there's an assumption. There's a working assumption in the Torah that leaders will make mistakes. They'll be honest mistakes. They'll think they're doing the right thing at the time but they've assembled the best learning and scholarship they possibly can, and they still made a mistake. Well, when the time comes that that mistake is revealed to them, and I know often the the troublemaker thinks, well, you you should just listen to me. (laughs) We just assume that every issue we bring up is the one thing that they're wrong on. Uh, Not likely, not likely, but there is a, a sacrifice for that. And so the leading astray If it is by accident, it's by good intentions, wanting to tend to the flock, care for the flock, then there's there's a pathway for that. But what is the pathway for the person who acts insolently against that judge? Um, It's not a good path. But if, like I say, it's just ignorance, not knowing enough, being a little confused themselves, having a little pride enter in, but not a true rebellion, not a true rebellion by any means then we want to leave that door open and say, hey, let's pray about this. Let's go our way. The apostles had to do that sometimes. Their disagreements were so sharp. Certain apostles couldn't minister together. So that's fine. So you walk with who you can minister with, and we'll walk with who we can minister with. But let's just keep in mind that there might be a day when we circle back and we find that we can walk again because we're agreed. It doesn't mean we hate the person. Uh, it just means that sometimes we don't want to impair the the spread of the word and the honor of the Holy One by trying to walk with a huge disagreement among us. So how do we know there's judges in our day? Well, number one, the Torah tells us twice, there will be judges in our day. But even Yeshua affirmed this in Matthew 18, 12 through 20, because he summarizes the application that Yes, you're going to have to function as judges as I send you out. And he talks about binding and loosening. And binding and loosing are terms that apply to what is halakhically denied or permitted. In other words, in a community, what do the scholars, what do the rabbis, what do the elders of that community determine the proper behavior was, the proper observance of that commandment within their community? They are allowed to bind, which means you're not permitted to do that, or they were permitted to loose, which is, yeah, sure, we want you to do that in terms of shaping how the the community would do certain things. And then each community has its minchag, its customs fitting that particular group. And so often a lot of the questions that we think are just life or death questions, they really fall into the category of minchag, which means in your particular fellowship, in your particular congregation, What is the custom that is practiced by your group? Most communities are pretty diverse 
in fact, uh, you know, you might have some women who wear a head cover, some who don't. You might have some men who wear a kippah. You might have some who don't. And it's okay. There, there's no judgment based on those particular things. But if you were to join a community where other women wear a head cover, then you might want to consider that before you join the community. Same thing if, if you go into a community where they do the traditional prayers on Shabbat. If, if you hate traditional prayers, <laughs> which, you know, God forbid, but if you don't like that, think of that before you get there. You know, don't, don't make a commitment until you've told people what your deal breaker is. And I'm concerned when we have certain deal breakers, but, you know, it's some I think are valid and some I worry about. But if you have a particular deal breaker, then it's not something to pull out six weeks later. Once they've come, like I said, to, to know you, to love you, to hug you, to clothe you, to squeeze you, you know, and send you to school, pay the tuition, pack your lunch. We get really attached to people sometimes before they roll out the deal breaker. And, and I don't know why that is. It, it's better to just state it up front. I can't live with this. And we can say, hey, we love you, but you're free to move on. But if there's a chance that you could live with it until maybe we study some more and walk some more together and you wouldn't be upset, you wouldn't be downcast, you wouldn't be unhappy, you wouldn't feel like you were sinning. So many things we label sin really aren't, but we just need to put that label on it to make ourselves feel better. All these issues are going to come up. And so this is where often we see people just trying to reinvent the wheel because the wheels really came off of their belief system, whether they came out of the synagogue or whether they came out of the church. Often what they have found when they find Yeshua or they find the Torah is the wheels have really come off of those systems for them. They're put into a place where they feel like they have to reinvent every wheel when actually you don't. For our congregation, we try to look and is, is there precedent where this problem is resolved in traditional practice within the synagogue? Because those rulings from the Sanhedrins, they were based on hundreds of years of investigation into the Hebrew text, where there'll be some things we can't carry just because of the unique nature of who we are, that we're believers in Yeshua, sure, or that we don't live in tight communities where we can just walk to the synagogue and there's a synagogue on every block, sure, that's going to have to factor into things. But it's it's silly to think if you can't keep one Jewish, uh, that if you keep one Jewish tradition, then you have to keep them all. You're taking their whole yoke. There's nothing like that. That didn't even exist in the first century. We're just making stuff up when we say that. But if there is a, a wheel that's already round, <laughs> it will get you where you need to go that will, again, open the way to peace and being able to bear fruit in peace, then consider those precedents. And most likely you can find the, the reasons behind the precedent. You can look up the scholarship and find out what were they reading in the word that led them to that conclusion. We don't have to reinvent every wheel because like I said, with the internet, we'll be inventing the same wheel every week. We'll just be you know discussing the wheel of the week. It's better to get some basic wheels on there and start moving. And then there's this, the end around. If you're a leader, you will eventually, like we were reading last week, you will eventually encounter a predator. And they don't all start out that way. It's not like a predator wakes up one morning and says, oh, I'm a wolf, but I think I want to put on some sheepskin or some, some fleece. You know, let me go find a nice fleece and, and put it on. Then I'm going to go, you know, try to take advantage of somebody. They don't usually do that. 
sometimes we're going to get a predator that's among us because that's where they are in that stage of their journey. Not because they're intentionally preying upon us, but because they're in a particular stage of their journey. Like I say, the the wheels have come off of their traditions, whether they came out of the synagogue or the church. And so they're still in working through that stage. And Again, they're they're teaching themselves via the internet, but there's a lot of uh, filters of offense that the information is having to go through. They're mistrustful of people. And because they don't trust anybody, they, they certainly don't trust people that they perceive are not any smarter than they are. And again, that's that's the stage. This is our generation. But at this point, I think when they when they come into your congregation, because of this vulnerable stage they're in, they have the potential to either grow and to thrive in your congregation or kind of stunt like Hagar. Look at the opportunities Hagar had in the camp of Abraham. She could have really flourished in Abraham's camp, but giving birth to Ishmael stunted her growth and pride entered in. She entered into competition and competitions rarely work out well. They never work out that well. If it's a if it's a spiritual competition, it's just like Simon the Sorcerer wanting to buy it with money. If it's a competition, it doesn't go any better. So these are the people who could go either way. If you have a shepherd, you might be just the right person to bring this person through this stage so that they can grow and thrive. But some people are going to show up and they're already a tear. How can you tell the difference? You can't. Sorry. <laughs> you can't always tell it. For, sometimes you can right off the bat. But some people who come in and sow chaos, they're just immature, perpetual body bottle babies. They'll, they'll take all your energy, just like a screaming baby. One little teeny tiny screaming baby can disrupt an entire service. But you might be the exact person, though, who can nurse this person through this this time of uncertainty in their lives, because people who cause this kind of contention, they're going through a lot of personal insecurity. And sometimes what they're doing in your congregation is simply a diversion. So you won't notice what's going on in their personal life. Often that's what we need to deal with. Let's let's heal this thing up. And I think it'll settle you down in your relationship with other people. You know, if, if you're having marital problems, if you have a drug addiction, if you're an alcoholic, if you've got any kind of challenge going on in your life, Torah doesn't, a Torah community isn't necessarily the first answer right there. Because <laughs> like I said, Torah is a much higher bar and it's going to expose those things pretty quickly. And, and often we'll just pile on a lot of stuff so nobody will notice that we're hurting. And so as shepherds, that's your gift to be able to see past that. When somebody who really doesn't have a, a the gift of being a shepherd might be more of a teacher, an evangelist, or a prophet, you know, oriented sort of gift, they're just simply going to see it as trouble. And the, the answer's in the middle right there. There has to be discipline. They're not, they're not allowed to go around harming the other sheep. But if there's no pastor present, who's going to call them? Who's going to check on them? Who's going to make sure they have some place to go on Shabbat, on a Rev Shabbat, to have that meal? Who's going to, you know, check up on their kids? These are pastoring things. And those things aren't necessarily addressed by simply giving them the best in-depth interpretation 
of this week's Torah portion. Sometimes when people are hurting, they can't even hear what you're saying about the Torah portion. So there's there's a healing aspect that can come into play. And often if we can address what's hurting, what's wounded, then that's where I think like Hagar, they can begin to thrive and get out of this competition with everyone, which is just a lot of, you know, pig pen noise. You know, it's, it's, a, it's throwing up a lot of dust so nobody will notice how much they're hurting. But these folks do have the, the ability to become a predator. So at some point, the predator on arrival that was just really clear to you, all of a sudden, somebody who's been walking with you for a while may turn into that predator on arrival. (laughs) You say, well, why did I not see this coming? Because you didn't. Because it's the same pattern. The apostles were faced with the same things. Don't beat yourself up. If you couldn't help this person turn around, don't beat yourself up. If you couldn't present just the right support of the scriptures that they're challenging. If you just weren't persuasive enough, if you didn't give enough examples, don't beat yourself up because this other person's choices are also factoring in. And if they have already, you know, concreted in their positions, it doesn't matter how many verses you take them to. Again, it it will have turned into a competition. It's not about trying to find the truth together. It becomes a, a competition for authority and to take control. So it's kind of the Ahab-Jezebel paradigm, this person who becomes a predator, and it's going to probably be over a single doctrinal issue, but it could be multiple ones. If it's multiple ones, you wonder why they're even there to begin with. But they're going to come to you and say, hey, we have to change this. We're doing this wrong. And the leadership is going to resist that because they're going to say no, according to our study, our investigation, our consensus, this is the way that this congregation is going to follow this commandment. And in that sense, the good news is you're not arguing over whether you should keep the commandment. You're arguing over how you keep the commandment. But they'll they'll experience this resistance. And rather than turn back to Deuteronomy and say, hey, you know, this was my best effort. I really think we're off track here. But, you know, there are judges appointed in my day. I don't have a lot of other options. I'm just going to sit here and serve and be happy and keep studying. Maybe I haven't found the end of this yet. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.